0: Okay, so true confession, I'm a little tired today. I um, was up in Idlewild yesterday. So um, our youth are on their winter camp retreat, and Travis was like, hey, would you come up and speak on a Saturday night? And I thought, I'm a little nervous. Like, That's like my roots is youth ministry, but it's been a little while. So I kind of went up there as the old guy. But um, I was so encouraged. It, uh, if you've got kids up there, it like... I can't wait for you to talk to them when they get home today. They're, like, having just the sweetest time there together, but God's presence is there. And, like, nothing gives me more joy than being able to, like, observe what God is doing. And um, it's just such a gift to our church, such a gift to all of us. And so grateful for Travis, so grateful for Chad and what he kind of laid down there. Um, Fun to talk to a bunch of kids, and I was just thinking we had done a spiritual direction training here at the church, and um, part of that training on the front end is just everybody having a chance to share their story. And I was sharing with the kids last night, everybody had eight minutes at this to share, not the kids, but at this training. Everybody had eight minutes, and everybody spent about six of the eight talking about the first two decades of their life. Think about that. When we talk about our story, who we are, who we've been formed to be, our relationship with God and all that that entails, so much of that journey is shaped in this like, really young stage of our life. And how God so lovingly comes in and starts showing us things about who we are that we end up like, unpacking for the rest of our lives. It's just a profound thing. But to say like, for these kids, like you're not waiting for like, the real thing to start. You're like in it. And these things of God connecting with them there, I'm like, you'll remember this the rest of your lives. As I think back on my own life, I remember those things. And I thought, I just wanted to share that on the front end as a reminder. And we're talking about when we want more of God, right? That it's this graciousness and comfort that comes right in to this moment. I was sharing with them that I feel like my call to ministry happened when I was 13 years old in seventh grade. And it happened at a time of loneliness. And it happened through that verse that Greg read this morning. As I went to God's word looking for comfort... I like just looked in the back, like which verse says comfort the most? And that's it, right there. I think it's there like five times in that verse. He comforts us in our affliction so that we can in turn comfort others in their affliction with the comfort that we have received from God, the God of all comfort. But I remember feeling that comfort tangibly and to go, what comes with that? Well, Paul tells us like we're comforted so that we can comfort others. And maybe that's the message for today, and we can skip the other one. Um, but, or maybe that's the undergirding of all the messages, right? We want more of God. Why? Because I, His love comes in and transforms us and pours out of us. And that's the simple physics of the kingdom of God right there. Um, our message is, is going to be we're going to have to dig a little bit to find it because it comes in what was like a very controversial issue. That we're going to address today. Um, And I just want to warn you about that on the front end. This was like highly divisive. So I'm not so worried about that for us today because uh, the topic is meat sacrifice to idols. Does anybody like lose sleep over that? (laughs) Either way, how many of you are like, yes, meat sacrifice to idols? And how many of you are like, no, (laughs) you're probably like, don't really have an opinion, right? But as it turns out, this issue was splitting the early church. As the the gospel was going forward, it was encountering all kinds of pagan religion and cultures, and this issue kept coming up again and again because meat sacrificed to idols was cheaper, right? It was an economic thing, and come on, it's just meat, right? Except that there were others that were, like, deeply offended by this. And you have Paul and James, these early church leaders, really trying to manage the church through this. And I'm so relieved to have this because it just feels so human, and in many ways, it just feels like the world that we live in today. I, uh, we had the young adults at our house this last week, and I just said, like, on the front end, let's just go ahead and share. Why don't we say, tell everybody our name, and at this point, like, who you plan on voting for in November. <laughs> and everybody's eyes are like, mm, Right. And I was just kidding. We didn't actually share that, but but to go. It's funny what lies like the anxiety that lies right beneath the surface. And an issue that really politically, you think about, splits the church, and not for any really theological reasons. That it triggers instead more cultural things within us. But deeper than that, more emotional things. And what we see is Paul going deeper and deeper underneath to get to the heart and to go, here's how the church behaves. The opportunity for us is that we would present the gospel in the midst of a divided world. And that when we do it, it's a word that draws hearts together around a greater truth. So let me read our passage today. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 1-13. through Paul says, Now, about food sacrificed to idols... We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Those first three verses, I think, are so good. And probably the heart of everything is in those, but he's going to go on to sort of extrapolate this practically. He says about eating food sacrificed to idols then. We know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. He's saying we know this, right? All of us know this. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. Here's where we all are. However, not everyone has this knowledge. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We're not worse off if we don't eat, and we're not better if we do eat. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple... Won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Now, when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you're sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. The word of the Lord. What's Paul talking about here? Well, he's he's getting to behavior, and, and this is really important. That um, so often we we talk about these ideas or beliefs that we have. These, who is God? What does this mean? What is the gospel? What is this all about? But like until it gets real practical, sometimes it just ends up becoming these sort of abstract thoughts, and we have a. a truth here that needs to actualize itself in our everyday life. And here you've got Paul saying, like, your behavior should be altered by your deep beliefs. And and when we think about this idea of, like, a hot-button issue, like meat sacrifice to idols, we can today just sort of fill in the blank with whatever issue we would. And so often what we want to know is, well, what is right? What is wrong? What is truth? what is falsehood, what is black, and what is white. But oftentimes, when our application of this truth becomes practical, we realize that life is much more nuanced than this, isn't it? Complexity. I like how, like in Proverbs, you, you feel the tension there, right? It's saying, don't rebuke a fool, but you got to rebuke a fool. You're like, okay, how's that helpful? Well, there's tension in this. Wisdom, discernment, Making sure that we keep the main thing, the main thing. I didn't use this in the first service, but I'll I'll offer it to you as a bonus in the second. um, A quote that I often quote by uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, where he talks about the simplicity on this side of complexity. Remember this one? He's like, the simplicity on this side of complexity, I couldn't give a fig. But for the simplicity on the other side of complexity, for that I would give my life. That so often in the application of this truth, we get lost in the complexity. We end up making a mess of things. We end up getting off track. And this is what Paul is saying, that you can, in the complexity of meat sacrifice to idols, you can make a huge blunder, which is to offend your brother or sister. That ultimately, in the end, you can do something, quote, right, and at the same time, get something deeply wrong. And this issue of behavior for Paul, he's saying, is everything. That really, when in the end, this litmus test is about our compassion. That once we lose compassion, we've lost it all. Now, I, I told you that I, I love how the early church, we see them grappling with some complexities. And this, the truth is that the gospel upended a lot of things. Jesus' resurrection and all that it implied, it, it created so much change that the church was struggling First, it was Peter. Remember, Peter comes back and he's like, guess what? God told me that Gentiles can just come in as they are, that we can have meals together, that we can sit at the same table. We can invite Gentiles into our homes. And everybody's like, what? No, like there are rules here, Peter. But it was Peter after all. And Peter came with this revelation. And so the church started shifting its culture around that fact. And then followed up by Paul coming in and saying this issue of this surgical procedure, circumcision, that we require of all converts, they get, to, they get a pass on that as well. And you see the church like going, wait, wait, what can we count on, right? Like too much is changing. And Paul's going to say, yeah, also these dietary laws, we can shift on that. And as it turns out, meat sacrificed to idols, that's not a big deal. And James, Jesus's brother, is kind of the, the head of the church at this point. And he's like, whoa, okay, that's it. I'm going to give you the dietary laws. I'm going to give you circumcision. We'll allow Gentiles in, but we're not budging on meat. sacrificed to idols. And this is what I love as Paul goes, all right, I can live with that. At least for a time. He like tables it, right? And you go, oh, why? Is that, is that wishy-washy? Should Paul have stood his ground there? And I think in a sense he's going, no, 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 I'm like coming to the edge of James's capacity for change. I've heard leadership described as disappointing people at a rate that they can comprehend. (laughs) That's so good. Ron Heifetz says that he's like this Harvard guy, and he's so great. But the change is disappointing. It's hard. It like upends us, right? That we we like. Wait, what can we depend on? I've I've heard it said that we can question five percent of our beliefs at any one time. No more than that, right? We start getting, like, worried, anxious. And so Paul backs off on this issue, and then James is going to send Paul out and Barnabas and a couple guys to, to, with a letter just making this clear. And Paul delivers it. And I, I love this part of him. And the letter goes like this. We have it transcribed, so I'm just going to read it for you. This is in Acts 15. They write, Greetings, Since we've heard that some, without our authorization, went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts, we've unanimously decided to select men and send them to you along with our dearly loved Barnabas and Paul, who've risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we've sent Judas and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth, like there's consensus here, we're on the same page, for it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that's been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You'll do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. Love, James. And he's going, okay, here's the rules. Here's the guidelines, right? Except what we see is like in Corinthians and in Romans, Paul's kind of pushing back a little bit on that. And I think that he's let some time go by that those issues are relevant issues. But why is he withholding that for a season? Is it just being strategic? And I think, no, what it is is he's being compassionate. He's looking at James and seeing that underneath all of this, there's what Paul is going to call weakness. An area of, let's just say, fragility in James. We might call it a sensitivity. That his conscience is tender with that thing. And Paul respects that, and he responds, making sure that compassion remains the thing at all times. And later in Corinthians, he's going to get at this idea in the probably most familiar passage in all of Scripture in First Corinthians 13. But I want to read it because it just gets to me at the essence of what is going on within Paul. And he says, if I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so I can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give away all my possessions and if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, it's not boastful, it's not arrogant, it's not rude, it's not self seeking, it's not irritable does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Love is the simplicity on the other side of complexity. And it's as simple as this. It's patient. It's kind. Paul's going to refer to love in what we would call in philosophy, the sine qua non, without which nothing. That if you've lost love, it doesn't matter what comes next. It's going to be off. It's going to be noise. It's going to cause chaos. It doesn't matter how true it is. If you say it without compassion, it does damage. It causes confusion. That once we've lost love, we should shut up is what we should do. When that goes away, that should be a huge warning sign. Hold back. In the beginning of our passage today, he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know as he ought to know. What is he getting at there? It's like being right as opposed to truth. The truth we hold with an open hand. Being right we clutch onto. It's a whole way of holding knowledge to know, like, I know, like, I'm right. You're like, oh, that's not how we know. I um, love how N.T. Wright says in his book on justification, I'm probably wrong about 30% of this. I just don't know what 30%. Gives himself the freedom that he's going to change his mind on this over time. This is the best of my ability today. So it's not saying that we don't have confidence we just know that our views may change or there's things that we're missing. There's perspectives that we don't understand. And here's the thing. Without love, we'll never get to that deeper truth. We'll end up being right and missing the point. James's concern is that so much grace, people are just going to behave horribly. <laughs> And you you see what he's getting at there. I think sometimes as parents, we know if we give too much freedom, right? Like how are our kids going to behave? But the truth is that we are transformed much more by grace than by shame or guilt or correction. And this is what we see again and again is the God who speaks, speaks vision, he speaks affirmation, he speaks comfort and draws us to a larger story. And so Paul is really just giving room for God to behave in this situation. What is God going to do here? Let's create space. Instead of Paul getting in there and brilliantly scripting the answer, he withholds his opinion and instead responds with compassion. I think about in my own life, times where I've been tempted to just claim to be right. Have any of you ever done this before? I've done this a few times where I've thought, this situation warrants, like, I'm sorry, but I'm right here. And I think that's always gone wrong, every single time. (laughs) Even when I'm right, right? I like that little meme that's going around saying, like, did it hurt when I asked you to Google that and I was right? Right? You know, like, sorry about that, but was that, was that kind of hard for you when I said, well, Google it? And it turns out I was right. It's like this like, inward satisfaction, right? We just love the way it feels to be right, to be proved right. And Paul's going, yeah, don't do that. That sort of retributive thing, that looking for this vindication or validation, that's this puffed up way of holding on to knowledge. Truth we can hold with confidence, but without what I would describe as certainty. Now, I know that gets confusing, and, but, but I mean certainty philosophically. Certainty philosophically is like, without any doubt, like 100% indubitability, right? It's just like clutching. But the truth is we can have the utmost confidence without having to hold it that way. This is the kind of faith that God wants in us the kind of faith that's correctable, the kind of wisdom that's aware that it doesn't have all the information and is curious to know more, to like constantly grow. I, um, I've read, been reading this book by David Brooks on relationships, and it's timely, and I'm just am a fan of his and just the way he uses words, but the last chapter is how he's describing really this emotional awareness and this hospitality is like the essence of wisdom. And he talks about this capacity to build this hospitable space is really rooted in our ability to see other people, to see past issues and into the heart, to see the weakness or the fragility, and to respond compassionately to this. He says all these different skills, he's just kind of gone through a list of different things, ways to build empathy, but he says they rest on this one foundational skill, the ability to understand what another person's going through. There is one skill that lies at the heart of any healthy person, family, school, community, organization, or society, the ability to see someone else deeply and make them feel seen, to accurately know another person, to let them feel valued, heard, and understood. Too often when these divisive issues happen, all we see is like the issue and not the person, right? that also we're blinded by our rightness and fail to see the heart, the sensitivity that's there. To be that kind of person that is instead drawing out the other, helping them know themselves and the compassion that God has for them, The grace comes from us showing them grace. Uh, In this book, uh, Brooks tells this story of Jenny Jerome who... uh, was Winston Churchill's mom. And uh, there's a story about her that she had met with these two statesmen separately, and they were opponents. She had met with William Gladstone, and then she had later met with Benjamin Disraeli. And she describes the two conversations like this. She says, um, with William Gladstone, when she met with him, that she was left thinking that he was the cleverest person in England. And later, after dining with Disraeli, she, said she left that dinner thinking that she was the cleverest person in England. And she said, you know, it's nice to be like Gladstone, Gladstone, but it's better to be like Disraeli. That this is the vision underneath all of that. As, as Paul is telling them how to navigate through this issue that's dividing and splitting the church, the, the truth is on the other side of it, the vision is a place of like such compassion and hospitality. That this is the way that the culture of church should feel, this kind of warmth that sees the other person, that makes them feel valued. So often we're trying to be the cleverest person in the room instead of helping others feel their value and worth. And this like little, you know, ha- it almost seems like a hack. It's this emptying is what Paul's going to point to and say, this is like at the essence of who Jesus was. Jesus came in humility and emptied himself. He had all this power and he laid it down. Any rights that he possessed, He forfeited to instead come in humility and compassion and love for us. And Paul's going to say, that's what you guys are supposed to do. That's what you're supposed to imitate. The Greek word for it is kenosis. It's this emptying, this laying down rights. That this is the very nature of God and the thing that we're trying to emulate as best we can. And a transformed heart is going to naturally do this. Theologian, I like Jürgen Moltmann. He he says that it's calls it reciprocal kenosis. That when we're loving each other, like the church is meant to love each other, it's constantly deferring and laying down its rights for the sake of others. And this idea, this kenosis, Paul is going to say this is the very essence of who God is. In fact, the term that they came up with, perichoresis, was a term to describe. God's heart, that it's this plurality of submission to each other, constant love existing within the very heart of God himself. And I love how perichoresis becomes uh, kind of the, the root word for choreography. They would describe that what's happening in God's heart is like a dance of love, of surrender, a constant giving of compassion and receiving only to give only to receive, only to give. This sort of circularity, there's a, there's a fluidity to this love. It's costly. It requires us to lay down rights. And yet at the same time, what we give is so much richer. Paul doesn't, you know, like drop this issue of meat. He doesn't say that it doesn't matter. It does, and so do the issues that we care about. It's not saying that the things that divide us are irrelevant. It's just saying that there are greater things that hold all of that intact, that keep us close. We're not letting these things splinter us, but instead we're living in light of these greater truths. And he gets it like kind of the texture of this in the Romans passage. I want to read this one. This is where he addresses it for the church in Rome. And he says, As for anyone who is weak in faith, welcome him. I love this. Paul's like, we don't make these people stand. God is doing this. God is lifting people up. What do I do? I don't pass judgment, and I don't despise. And it's kind of like the, the sentiment on either side and why this is so difficult. Both sides feel sort of superior to the other, one in its freedom, the other in its conviction. And they look at each other with either judgment or disdain, sometimes both. Man, when those things go off, those are major warning lights. When we see judgment and disdain all of a sudden coming out, it's a clear indicator that we've lost our love. That's noise. And so this reminder to them, like, God is at work. It is God who is the one that lifts us up. The rest of us instead are just responding with compassion and grace. And it's, it's our responsibility Paul's later going to go on and tell them this very thing, that, that it's on you to care for the weaker brothers or sisters. And part of this reality is that because all of us are strong in areas and weak in other areas, aren't we? All of us are more sensitive when it comes to certain matters and less on others. I was i uh, thinking of this just because I'm going to Vegas this next Friday to uh, get to go see you too, yay. Um, but uh, I've got a friend who's like, let's get there early and gamble. And I'm like, you can do that. But <laughs> it like, holds no interest to me. And I don't say that with any sort of superiority. Like, Gambling just stresses me out. Those of you that are like, love it. I can appreciate it. Like, I get the idea, but it just doesn't. No thanks, right? I just don't want to do it. And it, it, it probably is, there's probably something in there that's like more of a sensitivity that I have towards that and then other things that don't phase me, right? I'll try to be a stronger brother for my friend that I'm going with. Like, hey, you know, maybe that's enough. No. <laughs> anyway. But, but my point is, I say that without any pride. It's just like, it just doesn't hit me that way. And I get that others it does, but we all have our thing the truth is so did Paul Paul had his areas of weakness I just think it's interesting you know he's Paul's like so type A and uh, when he's traveling with this guy John Mark and John Mark at one point just gets like overwhelmed and, and he leaves he goes home and Paul's like you're cut that's it not going with you anymore and Barnabas is like hey let's give John Mark a break Paul's like no like if you want to go with him go with him so Barnabas does. Barnabas goes off with John Mark and kind of splits them up. But I love that later in Paul's writings, John Mark comes back in to the equation. And Paul's like, all right, he's a good guy. That, that All of us have these areas where we become impatient, where we get triggered, right? We know what that feels like. And this is where I think weakness is actually helpful because it's not to be like condescending. It's it's to say instead that we have vulnerabilities there. Do we know our own? Do we see where we get triggered? Do we see where we get lost in the complexity and lose the simple compassion? And this is something that we have to exercise and grow in. Paul's going to say this in Romans. um, He's going to say, but if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. So often we think if we see evil, like we come at it with like all our strength. And he's going, no, no, you pour grace on that. You counter evil with goodness. This is what God does, and this is what God asks us to do. That's so hard. Oftentimes, that means like giving somebody that you disagree with the, the last word. Like, no, 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 I want that last word, right? Like, I, I think of so many times where I've experienced that sort of splintering and loss and division. And I just think, oh, if I could go back and counsel myself there, I would be like, Jeff, let it go. Let it go. Not that the truth doesn't matter, but I'm losing my way. It's like keeping the main thing, the main thing. This sounds a little retributive, right? If you do good things, you pour burning coals on their head, which <laughs> I always picture um, Home Alone, where Joe Pesci like walks in the blowtorch. Do you remember this scene? Like, <sighs> like do good things, and it's like a blowtorch on their head. It's going to melt their scalp. Um, I don't think that's what it's talking about. What is he talking about there? Well, I think he is talking about conviction. But he's saying, the truth is, when you love somebody in this place, it has an effect. And if you've ever received that kind of grace, you know what this feels like. Richard Rohr puts it like this. He says, have you ever experienced the embarrassed red-faced look of shame and self-recognition on the face of anyone who's been loved gratuitously after they have clearly done wrong? This is the way that God seduces us all into the economy of grace by loving us in spite of ourselves in the very places where we cannot, will not, or dare not love ourselves. This is how God meets us in our brokenness, in these places of regret, he comes in and he just speaks so lovingly. I was sharing that with the kids up at camp, going like when, when God comes and speaks to Jacob when he's out there by himself sleeping on the rock pillow and he comes and speaks to him, like Jacob's kind of been a deplorable character up until now. He's like whiny and cheats and sneaks his way through life. And God comes in and he says, I see you, I'm with you, I'm gonna bless you. Grace comes in and reminds us we don't have this all figured out. We haven't earned this grace that we just sit there and go, thank you, like, accept the burning coals, right? Like, thank you. But that sort of humility, how do we remain in that place? That place of surrender? Well, we have to receive that grace to give it. We have to experience that love to understand how we could respond in such a way. And our ego doesn't want that grace, right? It pushes back and it's like, no, no, no. I want to prove my value. I want to prove my worth. I want to hide my weakness and just show strength. I've got this all figured out. And that's just not the truth. All of us have need for grace. None has have earned it, lest any of us should boast. So Rohr, he, he describes it like this, and I found this really helpful. He said that our natural assumption how this works, transformation or whatever, is sin is met with consequence or punishment, which leads to repentance, like, shoot, I'm sorry, which then leads to transformation. And he's like, this actually, this, is, this isn't how it works. The truth is that sin is met with unconditional love, which creates transformation, which leads to Repentance. As you think of this person standing, right, it's it's this love and affirmation that causes us to rise and to grow. Yes, we grow. Yes, we change. But it's this grace and vision that God uses to pull us there. And so we as Christians get to practice this, and I think it's so simple in some ways. Just being patient and kind, drawing other people out, being curious about what's Going on under the surface, I um, quoted from Ted Lasso, which, I, like in this regard, I can't help but, and it's season one, so if you haven't seen it, I'm going to spoil it, but you've had enough time by now. So, um, but there's this wonderful moment of retribution where Ted beats Rupert, who's the evil character, right? He's like Darth Vader in there. Ted beats him at darts. And he does it kind of on behalf of um, Rebecca, his boss. And she, like Rupert's our ex husband, he's just horrible. He's just kind of this evil guy to her. And Ted goes in, and in this kind of princess bride moment, like, oh, I'm not left handed, like, beats Rupert at his own game. But, and he's saying to him at this one point, he starts quoting, you know, and he's like, you know, I read this quote when I was, you know, with my kid that said, be curious, not judgmental. And, It's kind of saying, you know, a curious person might ask, like, do you play a lot of darts, Ted? To which I would say, yes, as a matter of fact, right? It's just such a lovely way. I mean, he says, every Sunday with my dad until he passed away when I was 16. And this is what I want to point out in sharing this, that um, it feels so good. Like, the place goes crazy when Ted wins. Rupert's put in his place. Ha-ha, retribution, Right coals on Rupert's head. But really the coals are put on Rebecca's head because Rebecca is undermining Ted and trying to just really take and make a fool out of him. And Ted does this thing so lovingly on her behalf. But then she also hears his story that his father died when he was young and gets this like window into his heart. And you see this look of softness come over Rebecca. And what's so great, the reason I love this show is I think it, it shows forgiveness in a way that sometimes we, we don't understand. We don't we, we comprehend that God does love us this way, but we don't behave this way. And I think the most powerful thing in the whole show is when, when T- Rebecca finally comes and confesses, right, that this, these coals finally burn so much that she just comes in and dumps it all out on Ted. This is what I've done to you. And he goes, it's okay, I forgive you. And you're like, that's it, Right. Isn't this supposed to be more drawn out? Like, isn't he going to make her suffer for this? She's like, look, you can go to the press. You can do whatever you want. And he's like, no, divorce is hard. And you go, wow, sometimes this simplicity is just that simple. Our ego gets in the way of all that. We want justice. We want retribution. And Paul's going, like, this is not what we do. This is not what God does. He says, do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience? not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? And our kindness, our grace, our ability to hold people with compassion, to not fill that space with our own needs, but instead to just lovingly draw other people out, transforms people's hearts. It's transformed my own heart when people have extended that grace to me when we talk about our church, we talk about this being a, a place where it's a safe space to heal and a brave space to grow. It really is my hope. But that this is done by the receiving of this hospitality of God displayed in our hearts. I like how Henry now, and he, he kind of contrasts these two things and just goes, look, we live in a world of hostility. Everything all relationships, all the like vine for attention, all this stuff is like this competition over space. But that church and really ultimately our hearts are to be a place of deep hospitality. That the division has been instead met with peace and our response is generous. Now it says hospitality means primarily the creation of free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy hospitality is not to change people but to offer them space where change can take place it's not to bring men and women over to our side but to offer freedom not disturbed by dividing lines we never take on the role of judge we always allow jesus to sit on that throne we create space where people are able to come in and encounter his grace when I think about this for us, I just go, I'm going to keep speaking that into us because you go, this is what we want to be. A place that doesn't get lost in the weeds. It's able to stay in this transcendent world of God's kingdom. To remain in that place of compassion. That sine qua non, without which we've lost everything. To respond to those who disagree with patience and kindness. Because... The division's going to get louder. I think you probably all realize that, right? Like these next few months are going to be rough. But how do we as a church lean into that division in a way that brings people together? Here's my questions for you. And the first is this. How aware are you of where you're weak? Think of what triggers you. I just, here's my confession. I hate, be, I hate to be told by others what I believe or to be misunderstood. Oh my gosh, like when, that, when I'm in a conversation like that, I like can't stop, right? I see my vulnerability there. And my question is, have you sat with God in that place of vulnerability? Am I letting God meet that need that I'm constantly expecting others to? What I'm trying to prove, my value, my worth, Am I willing to just let that go and to let God speak instead into that space? Number two, think of a relationship that feels strained by divided opinions or beliefs. I'm trusting we probably all have at least one. Probably most of us have about 12. How have you judged that or viewed it with disdain? How might you reframe it through the lens of the other's best intent? To be curious, what's behind all of that? What's the vulnerability? What's the wound? What's the thing that they're carrying? How do I respond instead of divisively? How do I respond compassionately with love? How do I be curious? Which leads us to our last one. How good are you at listening? So most of us are worse than we think. Practice this week um, by asking good questions. Being curious instead of judgmental. This is hard to do. I don't know if you've ever really tried to practice listening. It's exhausting to keep yourself out of it. But these are muscles that we need to exercise. Part of the way that we create that warmth and hospitality is by really paying attention, not to just what others are saying, but to the heart behind it and responding with love. Would you stand with me? I think we have a special lunch today that's provided by our friends. We have this ministry that we partner with called Unidos in San Juan. And I think they have provided the lunch today. So I think we're in for a treat. So stick around, grab something to eat, enjoy a little hospitality. Um, but let me leave you with a blessing as you go, that God would bless you and keep you. That God would make his face shine on you and that he would be gracious to you. And that he would lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. God bless you. Love you guys.